the unsurpassed penetrating and perfect truth is seldom met with even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dharma. Homage to the Sangha. Well, today we have Shantideva's chapter on wisdom. It's a very scholarly explanation of the Madhyamaka school of Buddhism, which was taught at Nalanda University where Shantideva lived and studied. So the monks present would have been very familiar with its principles, and we're not. So you won't go into most of it. But there are some essential points that are very helpful for us, vital actually. The purpose of this exposition of wisdom is to help us to make an end of suffering. As Shantideva says in the very first verse, they must cultivate this wisdom who wish to have an end of suffering. That's the whole point. It's not to be clever or look wise. It's practical. It's to help people, as always. So you bear that in mind. First of all, Shantideva says, there are two kinds of truth. There's relative truth and there's ultimate truth. The relative truth is the truth of the ordinary world where we take the things we see as real. But in fact, they're not the true reality. They're fundamentally empty of any real existence. Which doesn't mean they're not there at all, but it's, it's difficult, and he goes on about that later. Ultimate truth is beyond the scope of the intellect. You cannot figure it out. It has to be experienced directly. And Shantideva expounds on this theme of what is real and what isn't real. And finally he says, after some explanation of all this, it's not indeed our purpose to disprove experience of sight or sound or knowing. Our aim here is to undermine the cause of sorrow, the thought that such phenomena have true existence. That's the point, to undermine the cause of sorrow. Thinking that things are absolutely, completely real and to be taken you know, hard in a sense. Taking the things we see or hear as completely real, then we get caught up in them and we suffer. But it's not saying that nothing exists. It's more subtle than that. The Buddha said, if you say that everything exists, that's one extreme. And if you say that nothing exists, at the other extreme. There's the middle way between these two. And then the Buddha talks about dependent origination. Everything arises because of other things, due to our perception. And everything can cease because we stop perceiving them in that way. So what's real and what isn't real? It's subtle. And this is the understanding of emptiness, but it's beyond the intellect to really know it. And Shantideva says something very important here. And this is the verse when he starts to rise into the air. If you remember, he's 
giving his exposition at Nalanda on this throne, all the people, all the monks are there present. Manjusri has appeared ahead, above, above him. And when Shantideva speaks this verse, he begins to rise. When something and its non-existence both are absent from the mind, from before the mind, no other option does the latter have. It comes to perfect rest from concept free. When we're not thinking about does it exist, does it not exist, when we just let it go, they're both absent from the mind. There's nothing he can do, nothing the, no option does the latter have. No option, the mind has no option but to just let it go and come to perfect rest free from concepts. This is essentially the same as the verse in the Diamond Sutra that the woodcutter Hui Neng heard in the marketplace who became, one, became the sixth ancestor. Illiterate, never heard it before. And he heard this verse that caused his awakening. All great bodhisattvas should give rise to purity of mind in this way. They should give rise to a mind that is not based on form, not based on sound, smell, taste, touch or thought. They should give rise to a mind that is not based on anything, letting go of all concepts of what is seen, what is heard. And the purpose of all this is to help us to let go of our attachment to the things of our experience as being completely real, to stop clinging to them, to understand the fundamental emptiness of things, and thus to let go of suffering. As Shantideva says, it's hard for minds enmeshed in thoughts to pass beyond the bonds of suffering, and that's the point. Enmeshed in thoughts, clinging to things, clinging to thoughts, seeing everything through the filter of, I like this, I don't like that, this is a tree, that's a something else. Things both exist and don't exist, or neither exist nor do not exist, as the Buddha would say. And it's very subtle. So we need to train in emptiness to keep bearing it in mind. And when we do this, um, Shantideva says, we can live in the world of samsara, free from craving, free from fear, in order to help those who suffer in ignorance. Such is the fruit that emptiness will bear, he says. Well, when we talk about emptiness, I think we need to remember that we don't actually fully know it. Even if we have experience of it, I think it's even a lot bigger than that. I think it's much bigger than everything's caused by other things. Bigger than that. Never to think we have it all figured out or that we know it completely. You know, we're always going on, going on, beyond, always becoming Buddha, you know. Talking about emptiness or thinking about it can be helpful, but only up to a point. We need to train in emptiness, to bear it in mind. That's to be open to it, to entrust ourselves to it without having to figure it out, to entrust ourselves to it, to be open to it. But there's one thing we can know. We don't have to be afraid of it. The word emptiness can sound like a cold, dark void, which is why Reverend Master Jihu didn't like to use that word emptiness. She tended to say the unborn of the cosmic Buddha it's the same thing. It's not a nothingness. So in our version of the scripture of great wisdom, she changed void 
to pure. Form is only pure. Pure is all form. And she would say, well, if it's an emptiness, it's the fullest emptiness you will ever know. So we don't have to be afraid of it. We can think of it as Buddha nature. There's something you can't label, you can't pin down, you can't fathom. But we can trust it, we can be open to it, and sometimes we may experience it. But knowing it's there helps us to relinquish our grip a little bit on all the things of our lives. They're not the complete reality. There's something beyond all that. And I think that's a helpful aspect of all of this. So Shantideva says, whatever is the source of suffering, let that be the object of our fear, not emptiness. But voidness or emptiness will allay our every grief. How could it be for us a thing of dread? How could we be afraid of something that helps us, that relieves our suffering? No need to be afraid of it. Now Shantideva goes on. He explains that the self doesn't really exist. He said this before, but now he goes further. He keeps hammering at it all through this whole text because it's fundamental to Buddhist teaching. And now he goes further than he has before. If such a thing as I exists indeed, then terrors, granted, will torment it. But since no self or I exists at all, what is there left for fears to terrify? We don't have to be afraid, you know. We don't have to be afraid of anything, actually. These are all emptiness. Because there isn't a self to protect. And he shows us that there's no I to be found in the body or in any part of it as he has before. And furthermore, there's nothing within our consciousness that is eternal and unchanging. So there's no real self there either. No self in the body, no self in the consciousness. You know? Well, he raises arguments about this. If there's not a self, then what about karma? Who is there to reap the karmic fruit? When you do something and there's no self, well, who's going to get the comeuppance, as it were? And he goes on, he said, we may also ask, if beings don't really exist, who will be the object of compassion? What's the point of helping them if there's no one to help? And he says, it's true. It is through ignorance that they are said to be. It's our ignorance that makes us think it's all real. Well, in the context of this karma and emptiness and no self and all, I find the analogy of the wave helpful. I've mentioned this before. We're like a wave on the ocean that arises. This can be seen for a little while. It's there. People can see it. And then it falls back into the sea. Because it's a part of the sea and it always was, has been all along. But we can still create ripples with our anger and lust and greed and so forth. We can still do harm. And there are still consequences. It may not be me who suffers those consequences, but that doesn't matter, actually. Somebody suffers. Somebody will suffer. There is still suffering, and that's what we're trying to do something about. So whether it's me or not, is actually not, a, not the point at all. It's that there is suffering, and we want to do something about it. 
and Shantideva says, The source of sorrow is the pride of saying, I. It's fostered and increased by false belief in self. To this you may believe that there is no redress, but meditation on no self will be the supreme way, the way to let go of that false belief in self, false belief in self. Very important. It's the belief in a self that causes all the problems. In In other words, it's our selfishness that creates all the trouble. And that's what it all comes down to. If you were to think, how would it be if everybody suddenly just stopped being selfish? Everybody just let go of selfishness completely. Things would be extremely different in our world, in our lives and everything. But that's not likely to happen anytime soon. So we just do our best to do our part of that. And Shantideva says, meditation on no self will be the supreme way, the way to end suffering. Just remembering, maybe, that the self is not the reality. When it arises, ah, that's just selfishness. That's just my self that feels hurt. Maybe I can just let it go and not worry. Or contemplating the non-self. You know, whatever works for us. He says it's like the concept of the body. The feet or hands are not the body. Neither is any part of it the body. Thus there isn't a body. It's just an illusion. It's a concept. We see it walking around, you know. It's, but it's an illusion. It's a thing put together in our mind, as it were. Like the wave. We see a wave. You know, we see a thing, but it's really often most of what we see is just filtered by our mind and our thoughts about it. So there is no body, no real, you know, thing there. It's an illusion, it's a concept. And all the parts of things break down into smaller parts, break down into particles, which break down into even smaller units. They're like space, he says. They have no real existence. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's like, this is quantum physics from Shantideva. Then he continues to show us that everything has no real existence, actually. Consciousness, feeling, sensation, the forms we see, all the stuff of our experience. He says, what we see and what we touch is stuff of dreams and mirages. And what about the mind? Where's the mind? We can't find it, actually. Because he says, the mind within the senses does not dwell. It has no place in outer things like form. And in between the mind does not abide. Not out, not in, not elsewhere can the mind be found. If it is not in the body, it is nowhere else. It does not merge with it, nor stand apart. Something such as this does not exist, not even slightly. Beings by their nature are beyond the reach of suffering. And yet, there is suffering, as we will see, as we know. So Shantideva analyzes further at some length to show us that everything is impermanent. Everything depends on other things, including our analysis causes reaching back beyond our fathoming, reaching back and back. We cannot find the first cause of things. 
But at this point, we've long gone beyond relative truth to ultimate reality. And it says, where are we? Hang on. Thus there are no entities, and likewise there's no ceasing of the same. And therefore beings, each and every one, are without origin and never cease. Wandering beings thus resemble dreams, and also the banana tree. The banana tree is hollow inside. And also the banana tree, if you examine well. In ultimate reality, there's no distinguishing between the states of sorrow and beyond all sorrow. In ultimate reality, there's no distinguishing. And yet, there's suffering. Those who don't know this reality continue to suffer. hurting each other, seeking little pleasures, and falling into realms of sorrow. So there is still suffering. You know. Even though there's the end of suffering, there's also suffering. Here, exceeding all description, is the shoreless sea of pain, unbearable. Here it is that strength is low, and lives are flickering and brief. We don't know that all this is not the reality. And Shantideva says, When shall I be able to allay and quench the dreadful heat of suffering's blazing fires with plenteous rains of my own bliss that pour torrential, that pour torrential from my clouds of merit? My wealth of merit gathered in with reverence but without conceptual target just given to everybody. When shall I reveal this truth of emptiness to those who go to ruin through belief in real existence? There's deep compassion there for beings who don't know that this is not the reality. This belief in, a, in real existence, the belief in a self, clinging to things, these are the causes of suffering. And for all his analysis and logic, Shantideva deeply feels the suffering of beings, as he has all through, no matter where he goes in his logic and analysis, no matter how crappy he seems to get, no matter how blunt he is, there's always this deep compassion underlying the whole thing, the suffering of beings. And now at last, after our wisdom chapter, which we've gone through very quickly, we have Shantideva's dedication of merit. By all the virtue I have now amassed, by composition of this book, which speaks of entry to the Bodhisattva way, may every being tread the path to Buddhahood. May beings everywhere who suffer torment in their minds and bodies have, by virtue of my merit, joy and happiness in boundless measure. It's beautiful. And he speaks in beautiful terms of his great wish to relieve the suffering of beings. It's considerable length, actually, because he thinks of all these different situations people can be in. May those caught in the freezing ice be warmed, and from great clouds of bodhisattvas, torrents, rain, and boundless streams to cool those burning in infernal fires. Beautiful, you know. 
May the very pits of hell be sweet with fragrant pools. And may all the beings in all the hells be filled with bliss and peace. And see Manjusri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, freeing them and bestowing joy. And may the stooping animals be freed from fear of being preyed upon each other's food. Like the stooping animals, it's a sympathy for the creatures. And may the famished spirits, the hungry ghosts, have great joy, and so on. And may the blind receive their sight. And may the deaf begin to hear. And women near their time bring forth, like Maya Devi, the Buddha's mother, free from all travail. He goes on for pages, thinking of all the sufferings that beings undergo, and wishing them freedom and joy. Even those who have done harm and are suffering for it, may they be liberated too. No judgment, no limits, no criticism, just a huge, boundless offering of generosity and merit. It's a really beautiful ending to Shantideva's work, and I think it's really nice to read it for yourself, but I'm not going to go through it now. But just a little, a little taste of it. Just may all beings be free from suffering, and may they all realize the truth. May beings time and time again make offerings to the Buddhas. And with the Buddha's unimagined bliss, may they enjoy undimmed and constant happiness. And then he says, after all that he says, And now, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain, to drive away the sorrows of the world. This is his famous Bodhisattva vow. And I've been told that the Dalai Lama uses this, recites it at the end of every talk he gives. Because it's so beautiful. I'm going to say it again. And now, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain, to drive away the sorrows of the world. And his final verse. And now to Manju Gosha, Manjusri, I prostrate, whose kindness is the wellspring of my good intent. And to my virtuous friends I also bow, whose inspiration gave me strength to grow. Once again, he's not taking credit for himself. These beings have helped him. Manjusri has helped him. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have helped him. And his virtuous friends have helped him on his way. And so, he will fulfill his vow and may we do our very best to do the same. Homage to all the Buddhas and all worlds. Homage to all the Bodhisattvas and all worlds. Homage to the scripture of great wisdom. As I said with all of this, I've left out huge amounts of this text. So if you haven't already read it, and I think many of us have, it's well worth reading all of it because there's so much in there. It's so helpful and it's really beautiful. <laughs>